Good morning as I get myself together up here, open up my notes, too many notes. I'll take the time and uh, I'll tell you this, our scripture passage today is, see if we've got it in here, yes, coming from uh, Luke chapter 1, I'll be reading verses 1 through 4 and then 26 through 38. I will, however, be preaching on the entirety of the four Gospels. Imagine that. I really won't get to all of it, but all of it will be used. Uh, all of them are important. And uh, I also want to mention, uh, somebody mentioned it's two Steves today. Actually, it's three Steves. My son, Stephen Jr., is out there in the audience. I'm going to embarrass him. His wife, the former Susan Barlow that he met when I was a teaching apologetics at a small, now defunct Christian school. I met, he met Susan in eighth grade, and uh, I noticed that they were hanging around a lot together. And, uh, I pulled him aside and I, I said, son, you know, we don't, in this family, we don't form temporary romantic relationships for the sake of pleasure. You need to you need to kind of like spread it out and not be so serious about this young lady. So, you know, we, we're, we're looking, you know, for that permanent relationship later. You don't want to, uh, you know, you don't want to mess that up. And he said, uh, well, Dad, this is not temporary. I'm going to marry her. It's in eighth grade. Okay. Long story short, he never had another girlfriend. Many years later, after he graduated from the University of Georgia, they got married. And so we had the Jackson, and then we got the Jackson 5 over there, five of my So It's wonderful to have them here today. Uh, also, I was reminded of this amazing providence from God. I, I also coached the basketball team, so I had my starting point guard, Stephen Posner, sitting here in the pulpit. And I had my starting forward, Stephen Jackson, Jr., sitting into the audience. God is amazing and great. Uh, now let us go to the Word of God and hear what he has to say to us today. This will be, and every time I read the scriptures, this will be the inerrant, infallible part of the sermon. All else you need to check closely. I've never, I, I go back and listen to my sermons. I've never preached one where I didn't make an error, sometimes unintentionally, and sometimes later, as I'm a maturity of my faith, I look back and find out, oh no, I had that wrong. So whatever I preach, you need to go and search the scriptures to see if, it, if it's so. So let us now hear from God, starting with the first four verses of Luke. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning are eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. And then, briefly, part of the gospel that uh, we have 
from uh, the angel's visit to Mary, starting in uh, verse 26. The angel Gabriel appeared here and said, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent to the city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will receive in your womb, conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him a thr the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Before the child is born, will be called holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth is at this in the sixth month with her, who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. I love, absolutely love the Christmas hymns. They're just magnificent. And we just sang three. I want to start us off in this sermon with, with uh, actually quoting another one because it's so pertinent to this sermon today because I'm going to be concentrating on the gospel and particularly on the heart of the gospel, which is the incarnation of the Son of God. So this was written from, by a Savannah boy, so we can all relate to him. Very temporary resident. 1744, one Charles Wesley came to our shores. Actually, the beginning of his conversion happened on his journey over. He was on a ship with some, some believing uh, people and a storm came up, and he was frightened to death, and he noticed how calm they were. They were singing through the storm. He was quaking through the storm. He knew right then something was wrong. Uh, but that, that was in the 1730s. 1744, he wrote this wonderful, wonderful Christmas carol. Come thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation. Hope of all the world thou art. Desire of every nation. Joy of every 
longing heart. See, I could close the book right here and say, I've preached my sermon. You've got it. You've got it. The gospel. This is the beginning of the appearing of the gospel. Gospel is a, the word itself. We need to define it. I think a lot of people get, get off on Christianity because they don't understand what the gospel is. They confuse the gospel with other very good things in the Bible. But not everything in the Bible is the gospel. Though everything in the Bible points either to the gospel and our need of it or to what the gospel has done for us and in the future will do for us, will do for us eternity. But the gospel, the word, just sort of generically from the Greek, the way the Greeks used it was a, was a term from political and personal reporting and correspondence, meaning good news. The Greeks used this word for such events as the birth of an emperor or a major military victory. What a good, what a good word the Lord chose out of that Greek language to describe the son that was coming to the world. Because believe me, he is a, he is the greatest emperor that ever came into this world. And he would indeed be a great military leader. We haven't seen all of that yet, but he came to conquer. Got a biblical definition too in Romans chapter four of the gospel. It's always important, I think, to take and translate and understand that that term used gospel has a particular context in which it's used in the Bible. So Calvin basically said, if you want a summary of the gospel, just look at the first four verses of Romans. And there you'll have the entirety of the gospel summarized. Not all its parts, but summarized. Paul a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now back to Luke. I want to make a few comments about Luke's prologue or introduction to the Gospel of Luke. And the little notes that you have in the uh, in your bulletin. That's not so much of a sermon. Well, it is a sermon outline in a way, but it really comes from this prologue. As as Luke was laying out basically what he had intend to accomplish in writing this narrative. So the first, uh, the first verse is, inasmuch as any have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. First word I want to bring your attention to is that word accomplished. It can also mean and does mean fulfilled, but actually fulfilled and accomplished, you can see how they meld together. Something's been accomplished 
But I want you to get the idea of the fact that it's been fulfilled because what Luke is doing, he's reaching back and he's saying something that has been promised, something that has been coming, something that has been revealed in the past, mainly the Old Testament, is going to be accomplished today in our time. It's something that we have seen accomplished in our day. And that thing that was being accomplished was the gospel. So the gospel is the accomplishment of the salvation of God's people that happened between the birth of Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. When that was over, your salvation was accomplished. Next, I want you to notice uh, in the second and uh, third verses, he says, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word had delivered them to us, it seemed good to me to also follow all things closely for some time to write in a an account to you, O most excellent Theophilus. Now, I think this is very important. I want you to notice who wrote, Luke wrote this gospel to. We don't really know who he, who he is, but he is a member of a church. He's a believer. He's heard the gospel. He's believed the gospel. Doubt very seriously he's a minister. Right? He's just a regular old guy, just like you are. All of us are regular old guys. Well, I, I guess I am a minister, but it doesn't really make any difference. He was a regular old guy sitting in the pew who heard the gospel preached. Because you have to understand at the time that he's writing this to Theophilus, you know, there weren't many books in the, in the, in the New Testament that had been completed and put together. So he's writing to this guy so that he can understand what has happened and what it means. And I want to point that out to you because this was not written to some theologian sitting up in, the, in, a, in a high tower to understand. It was written to him, a member of the church, which means this was written to each one of us. It was given to Theophilus to Give to everybody else. And God in his amazing providence did preserve it. Had it written down for us that we might know. And then I want you to notice the, the last verse there. That you might have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. That certainty can mean accurate knowledge. Right? This is not just an approximation. This is accurate Knowledge, And it also means certainty. So if you, you take this gospel that has been preserved for you and written down here by Luke, along with the other three gospels, I might mention, because all of them are important. All of them contribute to the whole story. Right? If you read them, then you will have certainty. If you read it and understand it and meditate it, 
you can have certainty of the great salvation that is yours in Christ because he's already accomplished it. Very important. So, this morning, we're going to focus on the incarnation. If you read these Gospels, and I know all of you have, this is a biblically literate congregation. It's a wonderful congregation in the fact that the, the Bible is loved here, and, uh, and you've had a very good teacher for a very long time, very long time. He and I have a lot in common. We talk sometimes. Uh, basically, both of us have been changed over the years immensely. Our original understanding of the Bible has not only grown, but there are many errors that have been corrected. That's what happens to all of us. He said, you know, so the focus, though, of the gospel is going to be on the incarnation. And the gospels teach, if you read them closely, that the followers of Jesus, these eyewitnesses that uh, the gospel was collected from, and these prophets, and you know, these people were, uh, in, were given the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit, John tells us, preserved the memory of the gospel in there accurately, so we could have an accurate edition of it. But if you read it, all during this period when Jesus was accomplishing his ministry of saving us, these people were very slow to learn. And they had many doubts. And they had many fears. As a matter of fact, at the time when you have the climax of what he came to, to do on earth to accomplish our salvation, and that was to die on the cross and shed his blood that we might be free. Most of them were so frightened and so afraid that they weren't to be found. They were in hiding. They, they, they were scared to death. And after he died and while he was, was in the grave, you, you, you have reports in John, the fact that you had the, the disciples going along and they saying, we were hopeful that this was going to be the Messiah. We were hopeful that he would be the one that would come and set us free from our fears and guilt release us. From this oppression from the world, from this oppression from the devil. But now he's dead. Now he's dead. You know when they recovered from that? It's when they discovered who Jesus really was. They had an inkling of it. Scared him to death most of the time. Peter got an inkling of it when Jesus just said, cast the, cast the net on the other side. Bring me in some fish. And he cast it in there, and the net's so full he can't even pull it up. Peter said, depart from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. What happened there? He just got a glimpse of the divinity of Christ. But it didn't really sink in. But it did sink in. It was in his mind. He knew he loved Jesus. And then Jesus scared him to death. 
because that veil of the flesh sort of pierced for, for Peter for a moment and he knew who he was with, but it really didn't sink in, did it? So, the incarnation is extremely important and I want to uh, say that it's extremely important for you. Your confidence in this world of your salvation that all the things promised to you in the gospel, which are multitude. Many of you are like me, old. You're wearing out. You know your time is short. By the way, for you children, all of your time is short. We were made for eternity. Uh, it's like, this is a breath. You know, we're born, we're like beautiful flowers, and then we fade quickly. Just like a flower. The only thing that remains forever is the word of God. Who is in fact very closely associated with the incarnate son of God. So the word of God. Jesus Christ bears children. Spiritual children. And they last forever. So we are here shortly. But in this time, even though we don't have yet everything that's been promised and accomplished for us, we can be confident that, in fact, it will be, it will be ours. It will be applied to us at some point in the future. As our justification has already been applied to us, we're already considered perfect in the sight of God. He does not count our sins against us. And when we sin, we're able to go to him and be cleansed, cleansed from the culpability of it. So what is the incarnation exactly? I know you know, you sing all the hymns, but I don't want you to be like Peter and just know, sort of, and not understand exactly what it means. I'm asking you to be theologians because I don't think Doing theology and being a theologian is something that you leave to the preacher. It's something that Theophilus needed to do. It's something that the Bereans did. It's something that every, you need to search the scriptures to see if this is so and to understand the word. So first, let's, let's just look at the scriptures in the gospel that absolutely tell us what this incarnation is. Luke 131 says, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. All right? So that's the first thing. You shall, you know, Luke 131, bear a son, his name will be called Jesus, which means God saves. Matthew 118, now the birth of Jesus took place this way when the mother of Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they had come together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. That's another feature of the gospel. You got a virgin that had a child from the Holy Spirit. That child would be the son of God and the son of Mary. Son of God, son of Mary. Son of God, son of David. That's another feature of the gospel. Here's another feature of the gospel. In the beginning was the word. That's Jesus. We all know it. It's also the son of God. 
But John's taking us back into eternity. That's why you need the whole, all the gospel narratives in order for you to really understand the, the gospel. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. They were face to face. You got one person, the word, and you got another person, God. Which by it means God the Father, by the way. It's not stated, but it's true. You got the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So it's the word that's born of Mary. And here's an interesting thing that's very important for you to actually have some confidence in Christ, your Savior. This is what he did. All besides being face to face with the Father for all eternity, which is big. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. John 2 and 3, 1, 2 and 3. One, uh, yes. So, not only that, this word created every single thing in existence. Created through him. And then finally, uh, in John 14, it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace, and truth. So there we have it. Now I want to go a little bit further and go to a confessional standard that came after the Reformation. And I just happened to pick the Westminster Confession of Faith because it's the last one, well, not the last one. It's one of the last ones. Actually, the London Baptist Confession came shortly after that. But the fact of the matter is, it's uh, so like the Westminster Confession of Faith, it doesn't matter. All right? They both say exactly the same thing in most places. So that's where uh, the Westminster and the Baptist London are right together. So I picked the Baptist, I mean the <laughs> Westminster Confession of Faith. And uh, it's, it's, it's an historical confession. It's a confession done by Reformed people. You know what makes a Reformed person? A Reformed person is, is somebody that believes that all revelation, all truth, comes from the Bible alone. Martin Luther was at the head of the Reformation. He started a revolution because he believed that the, that the truth, the truth, came from the Bible alone, particularly concerning men's salvation and God. That's what he, what he believed. He also believed... And all Protestants believe that the, that the scripture is inerrant. And they believe that it is logically coherent, coherent. They did believe it was logically coherent. That's being challenged in our day. But they believed it was logically coherent. That whatever it says in one part will not be in conflict with another part. Jesus said it this way, the scriptures cannot be broken. They believe that. The truth comes from the Bible alone. The word alone. And it cannot be broken. It is logically coherent. This is what they said about the incarnation. So they're taking the entire Bible and they're drawing together things that they know do not conflict and they're making a statement, a real deep penetrating statement 
about the incarnation. Let me say something about this. This is a little funny. All these men were trying the best they could to state the truth as they brought it from the Bible. Do you know something? Confessions have no authority. They have no authority. Except where they agree with the word of God. But the authority doesn't come because a bunch of teachers got together and pooled their wisdom, and that's what happens when you write a confession. Good teachers, the best of the day, got together, and they wrote it. The Westminster Confession took nine years with the outstanding ministers of the church. And they were actually very diverse. You had them coming from uh, Congregationalists, you had it coming from the Church of England. You had it coming from Presbyterians. You had people from over in the, uh, the continent come over. It was all these Christians who believed in the same principle. A lot of them who had suffered greatly for the gospel and they came together. But these confessions can be amended. They don't have authority except as they are in accord with the word of God. But lots of times they do sort of have an authority because most of the time they're just quoting the scriptures. And then you can know. But you have to put the scriptures together rightly and not change it when you put it together in the statement, all right? You can, you can make something that, that's true and draw a wrong conclusion from it. And that's, that's a false premise. Even though you got something's true, if your conclusion's not in line with it, then it's false. So here it is. Here's what the incarnation is. The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, being very and eternal God of one substance and equal with the Father, dead when the fullness of time was come, take upon himself man's nature with all its essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost, in the womb of the Virgin Mary, of her substance, so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, and the, and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion without composition or confusion, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. Now I'm going to distill that a little bit further. I talk a lot about the incarnation. I think it's important. And every time I talk about the incarnation, particularly with my wife, she tells me I give her a headache. <laughs> and I've got a few fairly close friends that I, in this church that I get together with every once in a while, and I think I probably give them a headache when I do that. But let me not try to give you a headache. Just, the, you, you know, God is who he is. And we are who we are because we were made by God. So I'm not trying to tell you the physics of the thing. 
Because like Mary said, how is it that I could possibly, you know, bear a child who's going to be the king? I'm a virgin. I can't bear a child, right? Well, I can't explain to you the physics of it. But I know, just like the Holy, the, uh, the, the Spirit of God, God himself made the first man out of the ground of the earth and then breathed the Spirit in him and he became a, a, a living man. I know that that's very possible. Very possible because actually God made the universe from nothing. The universe is a product of the mind and design of God and his infinite power, which he you know, brought it into being. All right? So these two natures, the, the, the incarnation is joining together two entirely different natures. The nature of God and the nature of man. They are joined together. And if you want to think of it in a way that maybe will make more sense to you, since they're not physically joined in a sense, because God is not physical. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. He is not a man like you and me. So we can't take and sew God together God's nature together with the man's nature. That's not it. But what you do have is a communion that is together and inseparable between this nature, this, this nature, this human nature that was, was made by God from the womb of Mary, that was a full man, spirit and body taken from the womb of Mary, and it was brought, it's one of the three persons of the Trinity. Oh, by the way, you, you can't really understand the incarnation if you don't understand the Trinity. And I, I tell you the good part about it, the, the, the incarnation and the Trinity is everywhere in the Bible. And everything you read, the deeper you understand it, you will understand the incarnation better. All right. So, the nature of God is you've got this, this one great God and this one great God who never changes subsists or exists in three persons and has from all eternity. And we already saw that in John, right? You had the word of God that was face to face with God. By the way, the third person is always there too. You can see that in creation, right? You know, it was, the, it was made through. You know that the plan, I mean, you know this if you read the Bible further up. You know it was God that in fact sent his son into the world to form the world. You know that he prepared the world for us, right? And you know who was, you know, it was, it, was, it was the Son of God that was speaking. And God said, and God said, and God said. God said, let there be light. That was the Son speaking. But it was always the Spirit who was hovering over the face of the deep that was, so to speak, doing the work. 
We don't know anything about God except that which he has revealed to us. And he revealed it to us in the Bible, in the process of bringing his son into this world. And we know that the son of God is not the father. And we know that the spirit of God is not the father or the son. And we know the father is not either one of them. But we know that the God, that's why we use this, this notion of the Godhead. God is not divided. There is no parts of God. God is the great I am. God never came to be. That's why I can't explain this thing to you uh, in a physical sense. Because he's always been. He is the great I am. The existing one. He has never gained anything from anybody. He has always been what he's been from eternity. That's why we, we speak of things like the Godhead. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And by the way, these three persons are eternal too. They didn't grow out of that. They're unchangeable. They've always been that way. That's why when we talk about the incarnation, we talk about change, we say two separate distinct natures. We don't take anything away from God to make that. And we don't take anything away from man in order to join him to the Spirit. Two separate, distinct things. So I, want, I, want, I just want to read what the, the theologians, in case I'm missing anything here. Not infallible. There's some things I might even correct in it. There's the thing. I've read them a long time. But here, here is, here's the nature of God. There is but only one living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, Parts or passions. That's okay, but I changed that. People think that they mean that God didn't have passions. And I think some people today think God didn't have passions. But we don't know anything but what God tells us in his word. If I know anything about God, he's a very passionate God. He hates sin. And he says it again and again. Here's a passion. I hate sin. I'm angry at the sinner all day. And I also know about a, another passion that you have. The passion of love that overflows from God. God is very passionate. But what they mean here, he doesn't have bodily passions. We see a lot of bodily passions that are not good passions that come from the body. All you have to do is look on YouTube and watch People melt down and be carried away. And they're senseless. They don't even know what they're doing. It comes from nowhere. God's passions are not that way. His passions are eternal passions. He was. Going on. Working all things together for the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will. That's a big thing about God. You really need to understand this. Long, you know, and this is all in the gospel. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. 
Does, does God's will come from him looking out into time and space and figuring out what we men did? Did he, did he make us and throw us out here and say, I want you to be good little boys and girls? And then he looks out there and he, he finds out who was naughty and who was nice. And then the ones that are nice and, and believe and want to love him, that he chose them for salvation. Do we think that God just looked out and there was some random chance that the Son of God was born in Bethlehem of a virgin? Was any of that from chance? Why do things happen the way they do? They happen the way they, think they do because God decrees all things. And he decrees them because he loves us. He decrees them most especially because he loves his son. He decreed them because he is the God of love and joy and mercy and justice. And he decided to reveal it in his son, who is the word. And in order to reveal it to creation, he had to make invisible. It had to be the things that were hidden in the Godhead, the joy, the peace the happiness, all of those things. He decided, he wasn't given this, God is the giving God who gives good. He decided to make this known. And he decided to make it known by his son. And in order to make it known by his son, his son became incarnate. God prepared the entire world for us. I get real tired of people depreciating human beings tearing them down and saying real nasty things about them. Now, in our, in our current condition, we, we can say God's got a problem with us in our current condition. But I'm talking about men as, as originally made. They were made in the image of God, meaning that they had the ability for full communion. They had the ability to, to understand God to worship God, to enjoy God. They were given responsibilities that were very much God-like. They were to rule and subdue. They were to broadcast that image out. Like God, men were to have seed after their kind and fill the earth just like God the son in the beginning when he was making an environment for us to live in he filled the earth he filled the seas he filled the animal kingdom he he filled all of these places and it all revealed his glory so Man was created righteous. But he was created a lot different than God. He was created as a, first he was created and God wasn't. God, I am what I am. Secondly, like every other creature that's made, he was totally dependent upon God to save him. Everything that you do, you do 
because God gives it to you and you take what he gives you and you exercise it. That's how we were made. And also we're not like God because we're mutable. We grow. Jesus grew. The, the, the man Jesus grew. And most sadly, God made man where he was subject to falling. He created him righteous and good and for communion with God, but he was able to fall, and fall he did. And we know the tragic effects. We know what it is. You know, God set Adam in that garden, and he gave him this commandment, and then he said, one thing I forbid you. Do not take from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He was supposed to protect and defend and fill and subdue all the creation. And the first time, he had, he had dominion all over all the creatures. And the first time a creature shows up, a serpent, which was under, which, which was really a guise or a, 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 a possession of that serpent that was under Adam's control, by another creature, Satan, a fallen angel. We weren't the first people to bring evil into God's universe. Satan was, but he tempted. Adam. And Adam, well, first he tempted Eve, and Eve was deceived. And Eve coveted that knowledge because Satan said, You can be like God. Biggest lie ever told, right? God is infinite, and eternal, and unchangeable, his wisdom, being power, and holiness, and justice. He is immutable. And Eve says, I do that. I, okay, I like that. Adam also was persuaded. And he takes and he eats. Broke every moral commandment, which we are always, all the law of God is what you do. And what you do needs to be righteous. And the moral command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and your neighbor as yourself. You know, all the other commandments flow from this. All the other commandments that you put in the negative in the Bible are just violations of that command. So there's a man, I mean, you, you violated every command of God taking from that. You coveted what was God. You stole what was God. You listened to a murderer. You conspired against God. You, 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 you brought the death of every single one of your prodigy. Because God, because Adam was to fill the world with, with people that would be joyous images of God. But the penalty for sin is death. And what is death? Well, the body dies, but also death is even separated from God. And what happens if you're a totally dependent being and all your goodness and righteousness and joy and peace and happiness is coming from God and he drives you out of the garden? First thing that's going to happen 
is that you're going to immediately be spiritually dead. And you could tell it in Adam. His beautiful wife that he just goes, wow. God, she's so great. They're bickering, blaming, hating. First thing that happens with their first offspring, one of them kills the other. What, how do you do that? You've got four people on the entire planet. And one of them kills the other one. They were filled with evil and greed. They did not fill the Lord with the greatness and, and glory of God and his love and his joy. They filled it with evil. It was so bad that after a few thousand years, when the, when the earth was being filled with evil and all the intentions of man were evil all the time, he killed them all. He hates sin. And he preserved eight people alive. A couple of them might even have been believers. And brought them through. Why? Because he was going to bring his son into the world to reveal his glory. We're coming to the end now. Because my time's up. That's the only reason we're coming to the end. See, I'm just like Bob. I could, you know, I could just go, you know. But he, he gets the advantage of having, like, you know, he'd take this passage and we'd be through with it, you know, two years from now. <laughs> yeah. and that, that, but that's great. That's what you want. That's why you're so well taught. You want a, you want a teacher who's humble and, and known that he's changing and always searching the word of God and he's just so excited to bring it to us. What a, great, what a great gift he is. Not an infallible gift, but a great gift because he believes in the word of God. And it lasted all that sin and misery. That's why all these hymns, darkness, darkness. A covenant was broken, life was lost. There's no hope. Except there were glimmers of hope, weren't there? There was glimmers of hope when, when God sent Satan the serpent. And said, you, you spoiled Adam. You tempted him. Now, Satan was already a fallen creature, but he said, Satan, I'm going to drag you through the dust. I'm going to bring you down. I'm going to humble you. And then this woman is going to bear a seed. And that seed is going to crush you. And he did crush him in a most unusual way. He crushed him on the cross. He crushed him on the cross by taking away the only thing that God ever wanted to take out of this spoiled world. The only thing he ever wanted was you. You are the sons and, God, and daughters that God loved before the creation of the world. Steve mentioned this. That's what he wanted. So when Jesus died on the cross, he washed away your sins. He took the penalty from death. He opened up a new will and testament. You know, there's a reason that the old divines call Old Testament and New Testament. You got a death that occurs because a man failed God 
and the penalty was death. And we reaped all the consequences. We were born separated from God. So we looked pretty good to start with, and then we just disintegrate. Ever notice that? You got friends in, 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 in high school that were so bright and wonderful and, and everything, and then you meet them years later and they're so evil. Then you got others that were in high school and they were so evil you couldn't hardly believe it, and then you meet them later and they seem alive. Well, those guys have been born from Christ. They are his children. And the ones that are just getting more evil and evil all the time, those are the children of Satan. So Christ went to the cross to, to, to secure the one thing that God loved in this evil world. That was you. And his death secured, secured forever your salvation. You are eternal. And if you believe what I'm talking about, who God is in Christ, you will understand that he is the only person who ever lived on the face of this earth that could do it. He had to become man to die for you. And he had to be God because only God could take hold of Satan, basically, because he's still a king, all right? He, 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 he killed, he, he crushed Satan with his priesthood took away the charges against us, took away his authority to hold us. The nations were all his grab. Bob was perfect last week for me. All the world was in the grasp of Satan because he had, he had, he had all these cosmic treason people in his camp. But Christ gave God the ability to free him. Gave God the ability to free him. And so he will. And so he has. You might not see it now, but if you know who Christ is, you'll know you'll get it. That's why we live by faith. That's why we live by faith. So we'll end right there. We'll end right there. Let us live by faith, understanding exactly who Jesus is. He is the second person of the Trinity made flesh and all power and all glory all history, all things that come into this world, everything, including your death, is ordained by him for you. And whatever it is, it will turn out for your good. It will turn out for your good. And all those people that maybe upset you, who are the sons of Satan, that you watch every day, they may appear to be fat and happy. But just like Pharaoh God raises him up. For what reason? He's going to show us something so that he might show his power in them, so that he might show his justice in them because he is a just God. But for you, you'll know his love and his mercy that you could have never known if you hadn't fallen. Not to the depth that you would. Uh, hope I hadn't confused anybody. If I have, you know, my number is in the... Uh, in the directory. You may call me up and come over. I'm serious about this. And, uh, and, and talk to me about it. Or maybe you want to talk to Bob if I said something wrong and get him to straighten it out because he might do it for you. And then, you know, you can be like my wife. She won't be the only one that gets a headache. <laughs> <laughs>
So let us, uh, let us close in prayer. Father, you are a gracious God, greatly to be praised. And our hearts are filled with joy because you came. And you loved us. And we know we're saved. And you have equipped us to be your children, doing good in this world. And most especially, Lord, we know you're coming back. We know you're coming back. And when the perfect comes, we'll be perfect. And we will see you not through these eyes still tainted by all our errors, but we will know you perfectly as you know us perfectly, Lord. And we look forward to that day. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.